You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always in Southampton, England, is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, throughout lockdown and this pandemic, you have um, you have gone with all of my harebrained ideas for this podcast. We did a two-hour episode on John Schuster. We interviewed a pro beach volleyball player about curling. And we also did an episode on Estonian curling. Well, now it is my turn to uh, acquiesce to a, a project that is dear to your heart. And so what we're, what we're doing is we're starting a new, new series of shows here on Rocks Across the Pond. It is basically going into the 2022 Olympics. We're looking at basically 25 years worth of Olympic curling. Because if you think about it, the Olympics didn't really start with 98 with the Nagano Games. Really, it was also included that 97 season as teams were battling to make Olympic qualifiers and then the Olympic qualifiers themselves for all of these countries that were going to Nagano. So we're going to look at 25 years worth of Olympic curling uh, between now and 2022. Uh, Jonathan, what was what was your idea behind uh, doing all this? I mean, well, a couple of things since a, there's no curling and it doesn't look as bubble fantasies aside. Um, I don't think there's going to be much curling until the autumn, at least not globally. Maybe the, the bubble has pulled off in Canada, but it's looking pretty bleak everywhere else. So the one thing there is, is a lot of, um, fantastic games up on YouTube. So I've been kind of watching some of those during lockdown. Uh, part of it's, uh, and uh, our guests kind of spotted what I was doing right away. Part of this is a bit of a admitted, uh, ripoff of, uh, a Bill Simmons kind of gimmick that he calls the rewatchables. I think we're going to call our version, run it back, uh, where we're going to look at some kind of key games from curling history, uh, kind of watching them again. is kind of fascinating just to learn a little bit, but also kind of think about the larger story here of how much the game has changed over the last quarter century. But I think our, our guest today is perfect for the first show because he is the host of the Curling Legends podcast, and his podcast really focuses. Kevin, I believe, um, I, I believe what you say in your intro is you look from uh, the the invention of the slide up until the three the the advent of the free guard zone, I believe. But uh, yeah, Kevin Palmer is the host of Curling Legend Legends podcast and also runs the blog Curl with Math at curlwithmath.blogspot.com. But uh, Kevin, did I did I kind of give the the gist of your podcast there correctly? Yeah, well, I originally I think I I said something to that effect. I changed the uh, tagline to be from the 1940s to the modern era because then anyone can determine what they believe the modern era is. The other thing is the reason I say the 1940s and the invention and sort of the beginning of the slide or just afterwards is that's the only people remaining that I can talk to. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the people that uh, played in the day or, or I, I would imagine that everyone that didn't slide uh, is not available for comment right now. So uh, yeah, I'm up to, I guess, 71 episodes. We're now part of... Uh, uh, the Curling News and Sports Illustrated partnership, which is kind of cool. So you can go to si.com slash curling and our podcast is actually there. 
And uh, yeah, it's been kind of a, a like you guys do with this with this show. It's a labor of love, and you we enjoy the sport. And for me, I'd started a podcast uh, with uh, Jerry Gertz, and uh, uh, back in uh, oh, back in I guess 2011, 2012, just kind of right after Dean Gamble had you know had really been. I'd been listening to him quite a bit, and we did a show called Around the House. Jordan Baldick was a fellow out of Manitoba that we did this with. And I love the opportunity to chat with the old people. Like we had Rick Lang on the show. We had Colleen Jones on at one point. And for me, that sort of triggered my idea that I wanted to start a show where it was just a long form Mark Marin type conversation with someone who maybe hasn't been heard of before even. And I'm trying to capture as much of the sport before it disappears. And I have to say, it's been great for me, someone who's relatively new to curling, although it's hard to believe it's been 10 years since Jonathan basically taught me to curl in Oklahoma City. Uh, but as someone relatively new to curling, like your show has been perfect for learning the history of the game from, uh, you know, long before I started doing this. Uh, Jonathan, I will let you introduce the first game that we are going to talk about here today with Kevin and uh, kind of why we chose this game as the first one. Yeah, so... Uh, I picked the 97 Briar. Part of it, it's actually one of my favorite games, maybe even my favorite game period uh, in kind of curling history. Um, and it's it's kind of, it's a great, it's an early free guard zone game. It's got a lot of lead changes, um, a lot of big ends, a lot of interesting strategy. And it really co does come down to the wire. It's it's kind of a classic curling battle. Um it's Kevin Martin's second Briar, and I'd, I'd say that that's probably the Briar championship that turned him from kind of like an up-and-coming curler to a person who'd go on to dominate the sport for the next 15, 15 to 17 years, I guess. Um, and it's also got Vic Peters, who was a very strong curler in the 90s. And I think this like there's there's an alternate history in which Vic wins this game, and perhaps he becomes a bigger legend of curling as opposed to you know, still a very, you know, accomplished curler having won a briar, but it's that multiple briar win, I think, that kind of separates someone from, you know, being, uh, you know, a briar champ to being kind of one of the all-time greats. And Vic is is kind of so close in this game. Um, the other thing I want to do is it's really the end of that, what I'd call the, the true amateur era. I think you can kind of look at even Martin's team and it's still kind of a conventional, what I'd call play down team. Still, like very accomplished, very skilled as is Vix. But you can, as I think, one of the things we're going to see over this series is how the teams become more professional, and Martin really is kind of one of the teams that drives that, and it becomes, um, you know, a game where, as you're seeing right now, a lot of the conversations are about does the Briar, you know, does the Briar or Scotties really need to change their format these days? Whereas that would have been unthinkable back in back in '97. So that's kind of why I wanted to start our series with with this game. So Jonathan and Kevin, uh, just to kind of set the stage for this, like, let's go back to 97 and tell me, you know, where, where were you guys at in your lives, um, both personally and in curling in 97? Because, I mean, you both, talking to both of you kind of off and on coming into us recording, like, you both sound really passionate about this particular game. So, what I mean, what was what was going on in your lives that made you passionate about the sport and passionate about this particular game? Do you remember where you were when you watched it? You know, weirdly, I don't. I I do remember watching it. I don't remember where I was, um, like physically. I I like whether I was watching it um, with my roommate, who was someone I had curled with uh, 
in my junior days. And in nine in that year, I'd actually just recently moved back from Toronto to Manitoba uh, after being in Toronto for uh, a couple of years. And I had moved in with uh, a buddy of mine, Ken Aird, who we played front end together as juniors. So we had a place called the Fernwood Inn. You know, it's that great era when, you know, as I was 25 years old, single, you know, our scotch cabinet was rather full. Uh, those were good days. So we probably watched it uh, together there, maybe with a few buddies. Uh, or we may have actually been at Tom Clasper's house. Tom Clasper is a uh, fantastic coach. He's uh, he coached Connie Laliberti for a number of years, as well as uh, um, many junior teams, including uh, a world champion not too long ago. And Tom, you know, we stayed, even past juniors, we stayed pretty uh, close with lots of guys from the Fort Rouge and Tom, our old coach. So we would go to his house and watch games. So that was probably what we were up to. My curling career, as it was, if you will, was probably starting to show some uh, some uh, drop off just at that moment. I had moved back from Toronto where I'd played with uh, the Lobel brothers, Rob and Steve. Um, the Lobel family, great family. Art Lobel was a guest on my episode, won the, the Briar in 77. And, you know, really, you know, when I moved to Toronto, I mean, one thing that's great about curling, just to highlight, is I moved to Toronto. I don't know very many people there at all. I know no one really other than a cousin. And immediately enter into the curling world and you're just, you know, you have friends and it's, uh, it was great. Uh, but moved back to Manitoba and I, a good friend of mine that I'd grown up with, Dave Nedowin was just kind of at the early stage of his career. And I saw how much Dave put into the sport and I saw the amount of practice and the effort. And you guys talked about that, the professionalism starting to begin. And I recognized, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I want to do other <laughs> things in my life. And sure, I, you know, I love to play. And I, I did join up with my old junior skip and uh, John Boswick and a fellow by the name of Brian Penston, who's sadly no longer with us. But, you know, we had a, we had a good time. We, you know, MCA bond spiel playdowns, maybe the odd local spiel. But there really wasn't that drive at that point. And I definitely think that was the beginning of the end for me, which was probably for the better. So I, I'm a, yeah, I'm about the same age. So I was uh, sec. I was because I was third year of university, and uh, my teammate, and it was also my roommate, so Stu Yaxley, and we had uh, another roommate, Faisal Lechmedi, who was actually on our podcast about uh, on curling films a few episodes back. Uh, and so we were all living together, and we came up with an agreement to get uh, TSN for March, April, May partly for the hockey playoffs, but I also was adamant I wanted it for like the season of champion stuff too. So that way I remember we were, it's like three guys kind of, you know, putting their pocket change together, broke undergrads. Uh, and so we got TSN, you know, for ice for the NHL playoffs and for, uh, for the, you know, largely for the Briar. And so we were watching it there and it's probably the only curling game Faisal's ever watched. And it was, you know, a hell of a game to watch. So I mean, he was actually entertained by the whole thing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, playing wise, so Stu and I were kind of came up through juniors together at our club, Montreal West, and we got picked up, um, by this guy, Mike Belanger, who'd, who'd kind of played competitively around Montreal in the eighties, taking time off when he'd, uh, you know, had a family and then decided he wanted to get back into it. And he's probably late thirties, early forties at the time. And he was like the top skip in the club. And, uh, yeah, we had, we had a lot of fun then. We, we'd play down. We'd uh, kind of play in spiels around Montreal. And this is like kind of before the world curling tour is really getting going, but we'd kind of play the local cash spiels. And we'd be like good, but when we'd run into the guy, the Gee Hemmings of the world, they'd, you know, <laughs> they'd assert their dominance. So we kind of knew where we were in the pecking order. 
Uh, and I think I played down about three years there. And then kind of, I guess a little bit like you also, Kevin, I, I basically, when I started to go to grad school, it's like A, just playing competitively was just out of out of my budget and B, kind of over that next decade, just um, what it took to, you know, win a, win a zone or win a region really, really kind of took off and kind of uh, got a bit out of reach. So that kind of also was in a certain sense an end to, to my competitive playing days as well. So, so do you want to know where I was in 97? Yeah. What were you doing? You're going to make me feel old. I was in seventh grade. <laughs> so I, I was in seventh grade. I had never heard of curling. Um, and to, to, uh, but I do, so I do remember this weekend. So the, the Briar final that we're talking about here today between Martin and Peters was uh, March 16th, 1997. Uh, I remember that day as the day that Providence with God Sham God and Austin Crozier just mm -hmm. beat down Duke to advance to the Sweet 16. So that's that's what I remember about I kind of almost remember that game. I, I was a big college basketball fan back then. I think I, that sort of rings a bell, actually. Yeah. Jonathan, this was also this NCAA tournament. This was the Clems Gyms year where your Minnesota Golden Gophers made the final four, at least at the time. And now that run, of course, didn't technically happen. <laughs> it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> so I do also want to talk about a little bit of what was going on in the world at the time, especially the sports world, because I think that it factors, it, it does kind of factor into what was going on uh, in curling. So uh, this week in 97, the number one song in the U.S. was Can't Nobody Hold Me Down by Puff Daddy. They unseated uh, Wannabe by the Spice Girls. Uh, and the, the number one movie, at least in the U.S., was uh, the re-release of Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. Uh, and number two was, was Jungle to Jungle, which I think was the, the Tim Allen movie. Um, but then in the sports world this weekend, in addition to that NCAA tournament where Providence beat Duke, uh, you had former uh, Sabre great, which is redundant. Uh, Dave Anderchuk scored his 500th goal uh, for the, well with the Devils on the 15th, the day before this final. Uh, the Sabres were in first place at the time, by the way. In Australia, and this is interesting, um, and see where I'm going with this one, uh, you had a split in Australian Rugby League, which is not Rugby Union, but Rugby League. There was a split in 97, in March of 97, is when you had a separate competition start. So you had just the Australian Rugby League, but then you had this startup uh, competition called Super League where, um, de, uh, where Rupert Murdoch came in and uh, basically paid a bunch of players a lot of money to start this new league because he wanted to spread the sport around Australia, whereas in the Australian Rugby League, most of the teams were based in Sydney. He was trying to start up a cable news network, cable new, uh, cable network and have Australian Rugby League as like the primary thing there. So you had this influx of money coming into this sport that was predominantly amateurs up until seven uh and this whole super league war where all the players got all of this money uh really changed the sport there and they lost a whole bunch of fans um kind of uh kind of sound sounds similar to, to what's going on in the sport we're talking about here today but then the nba i do want to talk about this so this briar is significant because of the attendance numbers at the Saddle Dome, including the final, which was attended by 17,024 people. Just incredible attendance for one curling game. Um, but this was the second year of the Raptors. So you have the NBA 
coming into Canada. This was also Steve Nash's rookie year. And this is really like the turning point, I think, of basketball becoming a really popular sport uh, in Canada and getting some of the younger athletes to basketball. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, for I mean, for sure. And the, the fact you have so many Canadians in the NBA now, a generation later is kind of, you can tr- trace it directly to that. So is it a, I mean, is it a zero sum game? Did that take away from some people who might've been junior curlers? I, I don't believe so. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, yeah. Well, I mean, what I would say is that let's not forget that basketball itself was actually invented by a Canadian. Granted, he wasn't in the United States or he wasn't in Canada at the time, but I've actually been to his childhood home, or at least there's a plaque where it used to be. Uh, and, you know, you could kind of make a case that actually basketball does have a, a storied history in this country. It's just not well known. You're right. At, at, at a different level, sure, I believe that, you know, adding those two teams into Canada, let's not forget the Grizzlies. And sadly, I do think sure. Vancouver would be fantastic to have an NBA team now. It's a great city. Uh, there, there's actually a great history of a women's team here in Edmonton that traveled around and won all sorts of games. They were, and I, I mean, I'm, I don't know the specifics, but I do know it was about a hundred years ago. Uh, so there is, there's some history of the sport here, weird, weirdly enough, but I, I think you're right. Steve Nash had certainly a great, um, uh, a great, uh, impact on the sport here. And, and obviously, if you're going to have a team to root for, that helps. Although, granted, I never really cheered for the Raptors, probably until last year, because I never really cheered much for most Toronto teams, despite even living in the city for a couple of years. But that's sort of a Canadian thing where there's Toronto and then everyone that's not Toronto. And if you're in Toronto, those other people are less important. And so the people outside of Toronto, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> reciprocate <laughs> the feelings. Um, so we always appreciate that the Toronto Maple Leafs don't win unless you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. <laughs> so we ran into this with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Could it be, is it a case where, you know, there's only so much entertainment dollars to go around and in Oklahoma City when the Thunder came, you had all these people spending all of a sudden spending a lot of their entertainment dollars on Thunder tickets or, you know, there's only so much time that you can invest in something. So you had a lot, bunch of people, you know, staying home to watch the Thunder on TV, you know, is is that something that could have taken away from curling, at least in the Toronto area where you had people who suddenly, you know, their, their attention is somewhere else. Well, it's interesting you say that I lived in Toronto at that time. So I, from 94 to 96, and I got to know the Toronto curling community. Curling, especially at that time was a sport. You grew up in a family environment for the most part. There's Mm -hmm. the odd, uh, you know, player that sort of came to it without that influence but for the most part it's passed on from generations it was a family sport so i don't from that perspective what was probably happening at the time is more that you just might lose people from those families but the sport itself probably wasn't adding as many new people as it as it wanted to although it seemed to be you know really uh raising its profile i think the the free guard zone rules and entrance into the olympics were certainly going to springboard curling to a different level but the people that were already in curling and already loved it didn't really care that there weren't more people in it. And I guess if you even go back, let's, you know, talking about the free guard zone rules and Kevin Martin, as an example, was one who was reluctant to move to a free guard zone uh, rules. And in fact, there was a letter that came out of uh, Alberta from the, uh, I believe it was a, the Northern Alberta Curling Association 
suggesting that they stick with traditional rules back in the early 90s, so just a few years before this game. And so there was still a, a, a battle in the sport of those that had grew up in it and loved it didn't really want it to change necessarily. But there were others that were, you know, pushing it and moving it towards change. And I, I do believe by the time this game is played, I, I think if you ask Kevin Martin in 1997 how he felt about the rules, he probably would have agreed by that stage that, yeah, you know, this we've got a better sport and he felt comfortable that he could compete at it. <laughs> but <laughs> it was interesting that, you know, after his win in 91 and the old rules uh, in that 92, 93 season, as, as the discussion about the rules of curling was, was coming up, uh, Kevin wasn't necessarily on board. So for coming into the 97 Briar, how many years into the free guard zone are we at this point? So in 1991-92 season, Canada played with no free guard zone rules in its playdowns. There were some, I think, through the three rock rule had been adopted in some competitions, like Bonspiels, I believe. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how, how often it had been tried out, but there was some dabbling going on. The Moncton event, of course, had taken place just a couple years prior, 1990. In uh, That would have been January of 1990. And they uh, had tried out this sort of modified rule of where you couldn't hit on the uh, on Leeds Rocks. And it was the Howard brothers that had recommended that. Actually, the interesting thing about the Moncton event, they didn't even know what the rules were going to be until very close to the event. There was a lot of suggestions and players had ideas. That's a whole other conversation I've heard from <laughs> some people about what it may or may not have been. But the idea was to change the rules. We need more offense. And the, um, the advent of uh, the skins had also shown that, wow, you know, there's different ways to play this game of rocks on ice and it could be entertaining. And so, but there was still this reluctance and, you know, pre predominantly in the Western provinces, you think of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, I'd say particularly Saskatchewan, Alberta, they, they were more of a, a traditional mindset. Manitoba was probably pretty mixed. Uh, you had some of the more prominent teams like a Burtnick uh, that would, you know, want and embrace this new style. So then in night, so, so there's a lot of controversy. It was one of those curling controversies that took place. So finally in 1992, 93 season, um, again, four rock free guard zone at the worlds, no free guard zone at the Briar. However, what I've heard, and I, I still validated this, and this is from people from Ontario, but I believe the Ontario provincials were played as three rock. So when Russ Howard and that great, one of the greatest teams ever uh, with Pete Corner at lead, Mike, uh, Wayne Madod second and, and brother Glenn at third, they, they apparently played three rock, no rock, and then four rock to win the world championship. So then the following season, finally, three rock was adopted. And again, the three rock rule, just to, to so people understand it. Now, each team really has the option to have a single guard that can't be removed. By the at the fourth rock of the end, the team with hammer now can remove a guard. So that idea of trying to get the double centers wasn't really in play yet, and so that lasted until the early two thousands when finally Canada agreed. So you can what you can recognize is Canadian curling is stubborn, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just a case where I think uh, eventually the the game. People recognized that it was better. And this might have been one of the best, I do believe, one of the best examples of it. The 95 Briar, unfortunately, which had one of the greatest collected works of, uh, of greats ever with Rick Lang and uh, you had Rick Folk, you had Eddie Wernick, uh, Burtnick, uh, Martin. There was just a phenomenal field. However, the ice was not very good. 
and it wasn't conducive to great play. 1996, then you had a great final, Stoughton versus Martin. And for Kevin, now you, you head into 97. What's interesting, and you mentioned about that sort of Kevin Vic. At the time, both of them had just won one Briar, 91 for Martin, 92 for, for Vic. Both had won under the old rules. So it was unclear necessarily who was, you know, going to, you know, move up uh, in terms of that um, predominant position. Now, Martin had, had had great success, been to several Briars and lost in devastating fashion to Manitoba in 95 and 96. So it was interesting to see if this was uh, going to be another case of Manitoba being his foil, and it was pretty close. All right, Jonathan, kick us off. Um, I think you're going to kind of give us a little bit of the play-by-play. I will say you can tell that we're kind of new into the free guard zone here because the first thing I noticed when I threw this game on is the free guard zone was shaded. The ice was darker than the the rest of the ice, which was really weird to me. And it obviously was like trying to show people who might be watching their first free guard zone game, like where the rock can't be taken out at that time. Actually, can I jump in here? Because I, I have a theory on it. And you okay. guys actually triggered my idea to ask about that. And I, I did get a bunch of insight from a few people I'll, I'll bring up later. But Shorty Jenkins made the ice at this briar. Okay. It might have been the only briar, actually, he, he did. Uh, Hans did it in Winnipeg the following year. And Shorty wasn't necessarily in good standing with the uh, certain folks within the CCA. So it was, uh, you had Don Lewis, who had made the ice for many, many years. And he stepped down, later became... Uh, president of the Canadian Curling Association in, in uh, 2000, 2001. So Shorty makes the ice. Now, if you remember the Skins game, Shorty used to make that four-foot line down the center. So Shorty was a definitely a trendsetter and came up with new ideas. I don't know, uh, truthfully, if that was Shorty's idea behind that. To my knowledge, it's the only time it was used. It was that that gray area within it, within a briar context, at least. But it's interesting. Now, a, a little tidbit of why Shorty uh, made the four foot lines for those skins games. And who knows, he may have wanted to try it for this. Apparently shorty was, uh, short-sighted. So he had, as he was testing out the ice conditions, he would have trouble seeing down the ice and seeing how the rocks were moving. So he liked to put that four foot line. So it gave him contrast and he could actually Hmm. see how the rock was moving. Hmm. Uh, but another, another great from this game, if you think about a lot of the, the, the great pieces of that shorty Jenkins, one of the greatest ice makers of all time, uh, really a, a a person who spearheaded the modern game with uh, sandpapering rocks and and really looking to get more and more curl in, in the uh, in the game and uh, you know just they do they do show them in a couple spots in the uh, in this event and they uh, they highlight it. Um, yeah, and it's it's good ice. So I was watching and it's it's fourteen to fourteen and a half seconds, so a good like not too much slower than kind of contemporary curling ice. The swing's not quite as big as like the the modern championship ice, but it's it's still like two to three feet right both ways. So you can still still wrap around a guard. It's not the doesn't have the crazy hook that kind of like a modern championship. Yeah, and in some cases, it, but it still had a nice finish. And Don Bartlett actually mentioned he thought it was probably about maybe thirteen and a half seconds. So I don't know if you time you actually timed it. Uh, it yeah, I did. <laughs> and it did seem actually yeah. as, the, as the game progressed and who knows with the heat in the building it it maybe got a little bit slower at times and maybe they they struggled a bit what people definitely if you're new to the sport have to recognize is the conditions are not anywhere near what they were today so as a player and even from a shot making perspective it's a little harder to be perfectly accurate and one thing that i know the vic peters team was very much adamant on is all throwing the rock the same way 
and throwing the same release. And when I spoke with Dan Carey on the Curling Legends podcast, he talked about maybe the modern era almost has too much curl. Because now, you know, if a single guard doesn't really give you protection and the accuracy you need to throw at the broom is less important. It's more about weight control and you can control it a little bit more with sweeping. They used to feel if if they got a, a foot and a half a, of swing, as long as they got some finish, they could hair a guard and then the other team would be in a tough position to try to uh, make a shot, right? So yeah. uh, definitely that, that yeah, that part of the game, very, very different here, but play but like you say, playable and definitely entertaining. Yeah. And so the first couple of ends, they're blanks, but they're not. I'll just, what I'm, I have play down play notes for every end. I'll probably cut through the first couple ends quickly because the action really kicks up in the mid- middle of the game, right? So the first couple of ends, it, it, they're, they're blanks, but they're not kind of the modern blank where the team throws it up and down, up and down, right? It's the first end. So the first thing I noticed strategically is both teams, almost every end threw up their guard. So like Alberta threw up a center guard, Manitoba in the first end right away responds with a corner and then Bartlett wraps around. He's a little heavy and Manitoba freezes and you get, you get a little bit of junk and then there's a bit of clearing action and the end ends up being pretty, pretty open. And the, the other thing that's really funny is the commentators are like very impressed by double takeouts and run backs, right? Whereas like <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl and Russ won't even kind of say anything with one of those shots these days. So, yeah, and, and that's kind of a constant refrain by Colleen Jones is Team Martin's got all these double takeouts, right? Which is, it was like a big shot back then, to be honest, right? But so this end mm. starts off junky, ends in a blank. Uh, and the second end's pretty similar too, right? It's the same opening of a center guard and a corner guard. Bartlett's also a little heavy again on his come around. Uh, then, then we kind of get a little bit of a wraparound game. There's, there's actually a really good shot in this in the second end where Newfeld throws a triple, and uh, this sets up something for Manitoba. But then Martin, I think, also makes a really nice crosshouse double. So there's a few really good shots here early on, but both of the like end one and end two both end in blanks for Manitoba. So anything that jumped out in the first couple of ends for you guys, or trying to make that double, as you say today, it seems sort of routine. You expect them to make it three or three out of four or four out of five. I don't know that the odds on that specific double were as high back then, even with Kevin Martin throwing it. It's a nice one, right? If people can visualize at home, it's like basically one stone's about the T line off on the 12 foot. Other one's kind of back 12, other side of the center line. So it's a fairly flat crosshouse double. And Martin makes it perfectly, right? To, to get them out of in that end, if he doesn't hit that, it's, it's probably the deuce to, to Peters all day. Um, so third end, there's a little shift in strategy because because the default strategy in this game all the way through is one person would throw center, other person would throw corner guard, right? Um, the slight shift here is Alberta throws a center guard and Manitoba opts to come around and they come around top eight. Uh, Don Bartlett freezes on it. Then Grant comes around top four. So he's kind of buried behind a center guard and two staggered stones at the top of the rings. And this meet leaves Manitoba lying too. Rudy attempts to come around and freeze on that, but he rubs on the guard. Uh, Denny Newfield then guards. Uh, Rudy picks off the top Manitoba stone top of the rings, and Newfield responds with a hit and roll under. Uh, Walchuk misses the run a run back attempt, and Peters Vic Peters opts to guard. Uh, Walchuk then goes for a run uh, does does a double peel like a run back peel, and Carey uh, uh, managed to get a stone half buried sitting top twelve. Martin's come around attempt rubs the guard. Vic ops the guard. 
Martin tries to draw the forefoot, but is heavy. And then Peters draws for three. And so this is a, an early three, nothing lead. Um, and honestly, like if you, you, my stereotype of like '90s curling is if you gave up a three bagger early, uh, even if it, even the three rocks free guard zone, normally that game is over, right? If teams with like the caliber of Peters or Martin, right, it'd be like up and down, up and down. But this game, it doesn't go that way. But it's it's a pretty. What do you think, Kevin? I would have the same perception looking back, but when you actually watch some of the games, you'll find that wasn't the case, partly due to ice conditions. As well, you know, so the shot making is not as crisp. So it wasn't as simple, even with a three rock, to be able to keep things simple. And, you know, one of the, a couple of the other games to go back and look at is Ed Wernick in the 95 Provincials. And I've actually got his three of those games on uh, on YouTube on the uh, Curling Legends Presents uh, channel. And so that's 95, you know, that's the second year of, of that three rock free guard zone. He comes back against Russ Howard being four down. He comes back against Mike Harris being four down. Now, it is the great Ed Wernick, but still, you could get shots in play. And if you were top caliber and you could make your shots with hammer, it didn't take much of a miss to crack some points. And particularly, I think we got to, again, remember, these are a baker in the case of Chris Newfeld, right? You get Vic Peters is a, you know, golf course superintendent. Uh, Don Bartlett's a, a postman, works in the post office. I mean, these are regular guys and as much as as you said the sport was moving to more of a professional level it was not there yet at all and now they're in a building of 17 over seventeen thousand people none of these guys had ever played in an event like that and now it's the finals and yeah they both played in a briar final before in the case of most of the players but it's still i've talked to these guys and it was different yeah. and and you can tell by the way this scoreboard and and with and and it's still a well played game. Like it's not like yeah. there are massive misses, but it's a half shot here, half shot there for sure. And yeah. I do think in this one one thing I found interesting in this third end, the guards, as you say, like and and you'll notice that Vic's team does this a few times, throwing up guards, and you really see a transition of the sport to the run back game. And Kevin Martin is one of those players that came through and used the run back not as a oh it's the shot I have left. But, oh, it's the shot I'm playing for and I'm yeah. planning for it. And that wasn't really done much prior to this, um, you know, this era, this kind of mid 90s to the late 90s. That's where really it transformed into becoming an offensive weapon. And it was interesting. I think it's some of the mistakes maybe Vic made at times. There he throws a guard on his shot, his first shot in, in the third end. Kevin's got an intern draw. Now, I, mm -hmm. again, I don't know how much it curled or what the finish was on that particular spot. And Kevin threw it poorly and was heavy. But if Kevin makes that shot, all of a sudden it's a steal and, or definitely a force. And it might be very difficult yeah. for, for Vic to score. I don't think today anyone would throw a guard up on the outturn side and leave that intern draw. So fourth end. So a really kind of interesting end with a lot of half shots there. And Martin's able to generate, um, you know, his deuce pretty effectively in that end. Yeah. And as he said, you can't unsee the sweeping on Vic's first shot there as it rubs because they're sweeping yeah. for line and they're cranking it from the wrong side and you're watching it going oh my god what's going to happen here and then if you it's interesting on Vic's next he is just inches away on that roll from probably getting a force to one but it just yeah. just does that extra spin out rather than spinning in yeah and it, it, there's a lot of commentary during the game about not being certain about if a stone's going to curl or not and it, it's almost like you say it was the sweeping just a factor and they just weren't picking up on that uh so fifth then um, so Bartlett throws up a center 
And Peters, Peters now kind of, I think, decides to be more defensive for sure, right? In the, in the fifth end stats, the thing to note here is that Newfeld and Carey are dominating Ramshran and Walchuk, like they're, they're way ahead. Um, <laughs> the other thing I find funny is as this kind of up and down game's going, Colleen Jones starts defending defensive play. She says, oh, it's a legitimate style of play. And she's kind of talking about how great it is, <laughs> which is interesting because she she definitely goes on to master defensive defensive curling in the four rock free guard zone era. Uh, the fans start calling out boring. <laughs> and after an open end, Peters ends up stuffing the blank attempt, right? And giving up. I like to call this the junior force, which is when you're trying to go for the peel, you end up uh, <laughs> nose hitting it and, and being forced to one. So he ends up taking the junior force, as I call it. Uh, so kind of a, a bad outcome for an end. They were clearly trying to blank, I think, and ended up giving up the force, it, which which kind of lets Martin hang around a bit. And the timing of it was interesting. Don Bartlett mentioned to me that they actually were kind of pumped by that. They, you know, they felt like they weren't playing well and it gave them a little bit of life heading into that break. And you, you always wonder how much if mentally that matters at that point. You know, I like to break down numbers and look at analytics. So I'm not, I'm not sure that I believe it, but when there's a player and he's, he's telling you that it gave them a little life, you, you got to wonder if it puts some jump in their step at that point. And certainly heading into the next five ends, the game changes dramatically. Fifth ends, Interesting for a couple of things. They they do a scroll of all the team sponsors, which I think was like almost foreshadowing that the coming boycott, which happens a few seasons later. Like you could clearly see the cresting issue and kind of curling Canada trying to offer some kind of concession there. So each team's um, each team's sponsors scroll up. They also have a, a pretty funny Olympic trials preview. So they've got a young Mike Harris, right? And Mike and Mike Harris is kind of set is like the the underdog and he's like well a lot of people don't know who i am but you know we've played all these guys then you've got ed wernick who's he's hoping that the olympic trials will make curling bigger than hockey in canada <laughs> good luck with that um and i think the other thing that's interesting is manitoba had three teams in that trials already and we'll talk about this at the end of the game but vic peters doesn't get to make these trials but the dave smith rink does jeff stoughton does and carrie burtnick's rink does and, and vic I think just kind of the bad breaks he had in the nineties uh, doesn't get to go to these trials. It's nice to see uh, Don and Don, Don Whitman and, and Don Duguid, a couple of classics. Don Duguid was a two-time world champion and then moved into the booth shortly after uh, actually the, the, the uh, very next year. In fact, he was, uh, he didn't defend his uh, two-time world championship in 1972 and ended up calling the world final of Oris Melischuk uh, against um, uh, uh, Labonte. And of course, the famous Labonte kick. So this is kind of nearing the end of uh, Doogie's career, but uh, a great broadcasting crew. And it is fun watching these old games and kind of listening to the different comments and, and here and there catching something that's maybe not so PC. <laughs> yeah, that's what we see. Or I mean, I, I, what I love about Don is he like would hype these shots, and and sometimes it's like legit. Like he'd be like a double and be like, oh, that's a, one of his kind of catchphrases. That's an all Canadian curling shot, right? But there's other times like he's like adamant that a guard is one of the hardest shots in curling, and uh, well, and, and it tell was, that to my skip, right? You know what? It, <laughs> when it, I miss one, well, and, I mean, the joke always was, particularly back then, that skips can't throw guards, and that was sort of the the joke. But for some reason, yeah, it was it was difficult. And in fact, yeah. uh, you know, fast forwarding to the the following year, and Guy Hemmings against Dale Duguid and and Don Sun in the in the semifinal, uh, Dale misses a guard. 
and Gene yeah. Hemmings wins the semifinal and goes to the finals. So having uh, have, having played front end for Jonathan at USA Curling <laughs> Arena National Championships, I can tell you that uh, yes, the guard is the hardest shot for a skip to throw. <laughs> so you have your own story to tell, but <laughs> well, I say I gave it to the sweepers as my defense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Jonathan hogged a pretty crucial uh, guard for us that led to us losing. Um, I will say Don Duguid is one of the reasons I got into curling because I, I the first time I ever watched curling was the 2006 Olympics, and NBC had Don Duguid and Don Chevrier doing the doing the play by play for for those games. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so like my yeah. my introduction to curling was Don Duguid, so it was kind of interesting to hear his voice calling this game when I went back and rewatched it. And and. Not to go on a, on a doogie tangent here, but just a, a little tidbit for some that may not know the uh, the slides. Right, we we have always noticed that there's different slide techniques, but predominantly what we call the tuck slide, which is also known as the Manitoba tuck. Don Duguid was actually the first that really took that kind of slide approach, and so the Kerry Burnicks and Stoutons and the Dan Carries and Chris Newfeld and Vic Peters, we're seeing all these these slides. The the Manitoba tuck actually emanated from uh, Don's original slide, and that's where it began. Yeah. Uh, so six in. So back to the action, right? So same setup again. So it's the same guard, corner guard, and I, then a come around again. Alberta then jams the come around and raises Manitoba in. So they basically tap up the center guard. Manitoba then draws in to sit three. Martin opts to freeze top four. Manitoba then guards. Ramsharan attempts another freeze, is a bit heavy, and taps Manitoba back to lie second and third. So, And then Manitoba guards. Walchuk plays a run back and misses it, but opens up the forefoot. Manitoba throws another guard. And then Walchuk makes a, you know one of the better shots of the game. Right, He makes a, his second run back attempt, ends up sitting three, so like a run, run to sit three. Peters attempts a triple, but he wrecks on the guard. Martin then plays a tap back to lie three buried. And then Peters attempts an in off to cut Martin down, but misses. And then Martin draws the score four and kind of flips the game around right here. Right. So now the score has gone from four to two Manitoba to six, four Alberta. Crazy end, crazy end. And one of those, if you look at not a modern end, the shot that Walchuk makes, which might be the shot of the game today is you'd think that's a common shot. You wouldn't want to leave that as the opposition. And you, you, just think about what you said. How many times did Vic Peters, who is two up in this game, throw a guard? And one of the challenges, as you throw that guard, you might be blocking your own neck shot to get yourself out of trouble. So I do think if this end is replayed today, it's played very differently. And it didn't really look like there was that much trouble for Vic until late in the end. Now, I, I'm sure that uh, Manitoba understood as things were developing, okay, this isn't great. They were almost guarding because they felt like, okay, what are my other options? And it was really strange, too. I mean, on the uh, the Vic's last couple of shots, I mean, I think on his last one as an example, he hits a shot that's not in the rings and fails to remove any of the stones. If yeah. that was going to be the outcome, he probably should have tried the intern draw. Now, I don't know if it was makeable. Uh, the the guards were staggered a little tricky, but, um, you know, maybe he, he could have tried a draw and really taken Kevin out of the end, but he was trying to just um, limit the damage and I think at that point, you know, trying to make an in-off double to cut Kevin to, to two, uh, but unfortunately uh, missed that one. That was, a, I think, a, a big point in the game, obviously, in terms of swinging the uh, momentum. And, I don't, and I'm a math guy. I don't like momentum, but that's momentum. 
There, there, <laughs> I will admit this game has momentum, and I do think you know seventeen thousand fans, and uh, you know, and I when I asked some some of the folks like Neil Houston who has helped organize this, and Warren Hansen and, and Don Bartlett, I asked about the fans, and all of them said that they were not that rowdy. But it's interesting as the as the game progresses and you're watching it and listening, it seems like it's there's a little more buzz than there would be normally, even at a Briar final. Yeah, I think Walchuk's shot, for me, it's the shot of the game. And it's interesting. You look at the stats and you see, oh, Dan Carey outcurled him by 10 percentage points. That's a huge win at a very crucial position for Manitoba. Uh, but I thought Walchuk was better when he had to be. Like, I thought, I think whenever he faced a critical shot, he made it. And even though he winds up curling 75%, I think he was he was better in bigger situations. And Dan, we'll talk about it a little later on. Dan actually has a miss, I'm sure, a shot that he'd want back. So, and that's where shooting percentages are an interesting tool. You know, in a single game, a lot of times they don't tell a story. And that's one thing in the sport we still can't figure out is how do we actually, you know, use a stat like that? We know, you know, we know if a batter went four for five with two home runs, that probably that was a pretty good outcome. In curling, if you shoot 75 and you shoot 85, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you know what happened. Yeah, because he, he goes one for two that end, but he makes a shot that sets up a four-point end, mm. <laughs> right? And they, So he made the right shot he had to in that end. Seventh end, and this is actually the first time it happens in the game, which is like, in again, like contemporary curling strategy, mm. if you're up, you go top four. <laughs> this is the first time it happens in this game, despite there being mm-hmm. lots of decent, decent uh, leads. So Bartlett goes top four, Manitoba quarter guard. Alberta opts to freeze on their own. Uh, Grant then attempts to freeze. He's a bit heavy, but it kind of creates a little pocket. Uh, he kind of bounces off the two Alberta stones. Rudy then hits the sit three. Uh, Denny Newfeld makes a nice takeout and roll freeze. It's kind—it's almost like worth watching. And uh, it ends up rolling freezing behind the corner guard. Like if I was scoring it, you'd have to give that a five, basically. Uh, Rudy then peels the guard. Uh, Newfeld hits and rolls to the other side. So now they've got the split set up. Walchek hits hits an open stone. Carey attempts to freeze, is a little bit heavy and bounces open. Walchek can throw the double. So Alberta now sits first and third. Carey nose hits, so then Manitoba's sitting too. Uh, Martin hits and rolls across the house, and it looks good, but it gives Peters a freeze opportunity, and Peters makes a beauty. He just kind of welds it on right on. Uh, and then Martin, this is like a hot mic moment that I think kind of foreshadows an infamous moment. They, they have a strong, they have a long strategy discussion, right? And they kind of come up and they're not really sure what to do. Uh, and Martin says, if I don't shoot, Peters is only going to get two, <laughs> which <laughs> watching in the rerun, like knowing what happens in the 2009 final, you can almost see that that's probably one of Kevin's like default strategy modes, right? Where he's like, He's he's clearly always thinking, what do I leave the other guy? And in, in situations where actually throwing might make it worse, he might actually have kind of been open to throwing it away. I'm not sure if he's ever thrown away a stone besides that 2009 final, but uh, you could, I, just watching that moment, it kind of made me laugh. I was like, oh, this is, this is something that Kevin's kind of thought about doing before. Uh, and Martin does not throw the stone away, though. He opts the guard, and as he says, Peters is forced to draw for his two, and so Vic does draw for his two, and uh, the game is tied back up. Right. Yeah, there's a couple interesting <laughs> things here, though. One, I would I would say that most top players will say, as you're trying to figure out what to do, do like look at the shot and say, what if I don't throw it? 
And what you're trying to do in your mind is say, okay, where could I screw this up? Right. And especially when you think of an era where you're not always perfect. In other words, if I try this top eight, what happens if I'm T? Am I going to give up a big end? I have to be careful here. One thing I thought fascinating, and, and just to correct you a little bit, Vic doesn't actually play a, a, a freeze. He, he taps it a little. His intention was actually to tap it a little bit further. He wanted to leave himself a chance to play the run double to get three. Hmm. And if you look at it now, I, I still don't think, especially back then, someone's going to try it. But it's possible that the drag effect could have come into play and there might be a shot there for three. The danger is you've got to hit it high side and your shooter might roll out. And I also think back then that, uh, and in the moment, you know, with the way the game is just flipped from being two up to two down, they just want their deuce. And Vic's not willing to take a chance for that extra point. So I noticed a couple things in this end. One, they started the end with info boxes on Scott Grant and Don Bartlett that were made to look like websites looked in 1997. <laughs> and as someone who had a Jimmy Buffett tribute website on GeoCities in 1997, hey, they look pretty good. Um, and then <laughs> the other thing was, I th- and I think it was Don Duguid joked when Rudy made his first shot jokingly said, I take it he's the best player Trinidad has ever produced. Now, I know that Lord Kitchener got around, but I'm not sure that he was a curler, so I'm going to assume that Don Duguid is correct there. But like, <laughs> but to think about it seriously, like how big of a deal was it to have Rudy Ramchuran playing in this game? Like Culturally, what it did it mean for curling to have him in this game? Well, it's you know what's what's disappointing is it it apparently didn't because if, let's go back on the you know twenty something mm-hmm. years since we haven't seen mm-hmm. a lot more players um, who are visible minorities that have uh, you know had had success and so I, I you know when I think back on it at the time to be honest I didn't think of it you know the challenge that curling's had and I I'd be interested in uh, in Jonathan's take because. You know, we uh, we as Canadians always like to think that we're so accommodating and so, you know, great to all nationalities and everything else. But we do have a, a you know, we have a pretty a checkered history with Aboriginals. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the French-English situation, and I talked to Guy Hemmings about this, curling back in the in the day was not a French sport. Now, that's that has evolved and changed. Uh, and that, I think, for the better, certainly. But it was seen to be an English sport. And there was a divide. And it, you think about it, curling is, a, is associated with clubs. And one of the things that mm-hmm. clubs are, they can be inclusive. They can also feel exclusive. And mm. so curling is not without its own challenges. Uh, Terry Bronstein, who the great Terry Bronstein, who uh, skipped Don Duguid uh, to a Briar win uh, in 1958, he was the first Jewish player at the Granite Curling Club. Mm. In Winnipeg, Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And it might have been because he was pretty good at curling, <laughs> right? And and it's <laughs> interesting that, you know, I, I do think this is an area and there's been a lot of talk about how they improve it. I think the the idea of the club has been a detriment and clubs need to, I think part of it is a lot of clubs in Canada have, well, they've struggled. Uh, a lot of them have struggled and, and there's a lot of effort that needs to be taken to bring people in through various means. And that's all people. And as I said earlier at the beginning of the show was curling, you grew up through your family, through your parents, and those were predominantly white families. And so this was a case of someone breaking in. And I, I wish it had more impact, I guess is what I would say. Uh, And uh, maybe we'll, we'll continue to improve there. 
I, th I think it was really telling reading about it, re reading stories from back in 97. You know, this briar was in Calgary and apparently Rudy just over and over had to tell the media, this is not the Jamaican bobsled story. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and there is a point in time where, and I can't remember which end it is, but Doogie goes to say his name and kind of stumbles a little and says Rem Charan and has a bit of the pause because he's in his brain trying to figure out how to pronounce. Well, and, and it is interesting because I've heard I've heard I've heard Ramcharan, and then in the during the medal ceremony after the game, they all say Ramcharan. Yeah, and I, I think that's why why Doogie wasn't sure <laughs> at the time, so he paused. Because <laughs> I think even Kevin Martin says Ramcharan, which is a very mm -hmm. Anglo way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he is the crowd favorite, though. Like as the game goes on, there's more and more calls for Rudy. Like Rudy, every time he makes a shot, like he clearly. He clearly like endeared himself to the fans that week. I think probably being the hometown team also helped a bit. And he, you know, he played really well in that game. Too. Well, it's kind of weird. They're they're the home province team. Kevin yeah. and his teams were not beloved in Calgary, and there was a lot of uh, battles between the North and the South in Alberta. You got to remember that the actual curling association in Alberta there there was a Southern Alberta curling association and a Northern mm -hmm. Alberta curling association. And if you even go back further the provincial final was a battle between the two winning teams. So there's yeah. a long history of actually uh, opposition in the same way that the Oilers and the, and the flames, but for that uh, moment and that week, and certainly that day, uh, most of the fans, I, I believe it seemed like we're, we're behind Kevin and the team. We're, yeah. we're also four years out from the Rudy movie being released. So I'm sure that that chant, <laughs> I'm sure that that led to the, the, the chant happening a lot during this game. Yeah, that's that's got to be at least top ninety three of all sports movies. I think right up, right up in there. Yeah, <laughs> in my opinion, anyway. <laughs> so eighth ends. It starts off. It's a fun, another kind of funny cultural moment here. So they have a quick cut to Warren Hansen, kind of I guess in the officials booth. Uh, he makes a quick on screen cameo, and then Don Duguid gives like a, a quick soliloquy defending Hansen against all the curlers who who kind of talk badly about him. So and. and <laughs> But but if you but does he? I wanted I was wondering that because I, I made a note on that. I'm not sure where Doogie and Warren were actually in terms of their um you know, it's different eras for sure. But Doogie yeah. says he gets maligned by a lot of curlers, but let me tell you, he gets the job done. In in one of those famous Doogie says, I'm gonna tell you, and then he tells you. And it's interesting because I I I'm with you. I mean, it sounds like it's a positive spin. I just don't know how much of his heart's in it in that moment. And and at the time, this is a little beyond the '87 trials, which was the mm -hmm. Olympic trials to go to the uh, when the '88 uh, Calgary Olympics when it was a demonstration sport. But all of the controversy that surrounded that was Warren as a representative of the CCA, and then you had Ed Wernick, and there was just so much um, beloved uh, like uh, support for Eddie. And in general, the CCA, there was it was a rocky relationship for sure between a lot of the curlers and that association. And Warren represented it. Although what I've really come to learn now is Warren wasn't, you know, always <laughs> the CCA. He he was mm -hmm. in there and a lot of times he was comfortable taking it on the chin. Uh, but I joked with him when I interviewed him afterwards. I said, you know, as a, as a junior and a kid growing up in Manitoba, you were either Darth Vader or the Emperor, right? <laughs> and he yeah. just and the thing I love about Warren is that he just chuckled because he was willing to accept that. And I, I there's a great um, podcast by Malcolm Gladwell and in, in about 
Rick Barry. And actually, it's uh, kind of revisited on one of the recent Book of Basketball podcasts where they talk about Rick Barry and a level of disagreeableness. And Warren was uh, was definitely kind of in that camp. Warren's someone who can forge ahead and not really care what others think. And it's uh, it's had a, obviously a huge impact on the sport. But I'm yeah. not sure where I him mean, and Doogie were, to be honest, in terms of their uh, friendship. I don't know if they had Christmas cards uh, exchanged. <laughs> I mean, he, you're right. He definitely was the like the heel of of 80s and 90s curling in Canada. Like he, and he, I think in some ways you're right. He kind of embraced the role. Like I think he sees himself as the builder, and thought that part of being a builder of Canadian curling was certain things had to be done. And that may be that may mean that we've got to, to you know, you know, force curlers to lose weight, uh, you know, change the format of different playdown oh. things, like a lot of that. He, I mean, the other ones that he was kind of involved in in the '90s, there was the the final. Do you remember the final? It's the Cooey final of the Canadian Juniors, and he basically had to come over the boards and and kind of enforce the the Burnstone. Remember that? Yeah, in 1994. And interestingly enough, on an upcoming episode of Curling Legends, I have an interview with Ray Kells, who was the head umpire that year and she had actually also been head umpire the previous year at the at the junior women's for a similar controversial call so uh yeah i mean warren always seemed to find himself in these spots in particular in the mid 90s even go back to 1993 so vic is the defending mm-hmm. prior champion unlike today he had to go back to his club to play out of his club he had to go back into play like a club he had to play out of his club yeah. let's remember that everyone and then go into the zones and then try to make his way through a double knockout in Manitoba, gets back to the briar to make back to back briars out of Manitoba. Not common, very back in that era, very difficult. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, needless to say, the math doesn't really, uh, uh, play out that that's supposed to happen. So Vic's, you know, this, this team's riding on a high and yeah. they're, they've beaten everybody that week, but there's the four way tie and the rules had just been rewritten for three rock. And there was a lot, um, Oh, sorry. No, that was the following season. Correct that. But they, uh, in the rules, there wasn't anything that really explained how this four-way tie would work. And I've talked to Warren about it. I've talked to a lot of people about it. But clearly, there was a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding. So on the Friday, when Vic wins their last game, they've beaten the other three teams that are tied with. They think they have a bye to the final. They do mm-hmm. not. And yeah. Dan Carey loses his mind and is is quite angered because he finds this out right at the end of the last round robin game and he's calling for Warren to come down and talk to him face to face and Warren doesn't and so there's some other history and background that goes back (laughs) there as well and it was a year in in that 93 um briar where you know Vic kind of got the short end of the stick again and it was really unfortunate and you know Russ Howard goes on to be a world champion that year but things could have played out differently yeah, it's it, he. He was, you know, for an official, he was very involved in building the game in the '80s and '90s. So his cameo here is it's kind of brought a chuckle to me. Do we yeah. want to actually ch- touch on this a little bit? Because Warren sent me some notes, just as some other background sure. on this. That this was a big deal. So this was the Saddle Dome. This was a hockey arena. This had never been attempted before. Yeah. Uh, Warren was a big part of trying to make it happen. But understand that the CCA and Curl Canada actually at the time, or what it's now known as didn't run the briar. The briar was run by the local host committee. So it was actually Warren with some other folks supporting him to help the the committee on like believe that they could make this happen. And they did come to believe it, but there were skeptics and there were people mm-hmm. uh, on all sides of the administration side uh, within CCA and, and within Alberta that really doubted, could we make this work? And there was a big 
dollar amount that they had to pony up to the uh, to the facility. So I've heard Neil Houston's mentioned a million dollars. Warren seemed to think it was closer to half a million, and then there were some other costs for other things. But this was a big ask of a government organization. The CCA is just you know government run. It's not getting money for medals yet with the Olympics. It's probably limited in its funding and it's got a lot of support through all the member associations. So not something that was a, a slam dunk. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was a huge moment for, for curling, right. To be in a, a facility this large. Yeah. And, and Warren was kind of a major force behind and, that. And too, to fill it. Sure. And like, yeah. And we, to fill it yeah. been in those facilities, but not always to that extent for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get back to the action. So, um, so after, after the, the Warren Hansen cameo, uh, Scott Grant puts up a guard. Bartlett makes the come around top eight. Grant freezes top twelve. Bartlett rubs the guard on the come around attempt. the The crowd starts doing the wave. I really think the last three ends, the crowd does get pretty like for a curling crowd. Let's put it that way. Does get a bit wild. Are you saying that uh, they did not stop <laughs> beer sales after the seventh end? They it got a bit rowdy, right? So then, this is like a you know, it's a tie game. <laughs> Crowd starts doing the wave, uh, and all Martin has left is a tap for one. He throws it. The, the sweepers jump it out of Martin's hand, and he's light. He's the tight and light again, and he gives up a steal of two to Vic. So big steal of big steal and big momentum shift again in this end. Well, and, well, and an end that if you know, and this happens a lot in this game, and I think it's something that people need to under you know recognize about curling, which is so fascinating. A lot of times. You look great. And in fact, sometimes your opposition makes a half shot or a miss, but it, you get sucked into making a, a, another shot or that becomes your obvious shot. And all of a sudden the tables turn so quickly. So he's down. It's Manitoba's up eight, six, having scored a two and eight. So again, like with like, you know, basic curling theory, like I'm not sure you, you well, you obviously do know the numbers since you kind of invented the oh, win expectancy. You want me to go through them now? Cause I actually had like, but, but I was going to do that at the end. We can work through. Yeah. At the, at the end, we can talk about it, but this, the, the points that Alberta, Manitoba is in a very good spot right now. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll save that to the end. Let's just yeah. kind of run through the last two ends. Ryan, do you have anything you want to say about this end? Uh, can we talk about the commercials or do we want to wait until after? Yes, we no, get please do. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I had a, I had a, I have, I have notes on commercials from these two ends. Um, <laughs> one there, you have, you have the one AT&T commercial that has a payphone, which is adorable. Um, then, all right. So here's, here's the one that I really thought was incredible it was a nokia commercial where you have it's basically cell phones are so easy a child could use them and it's like a child is in the back seat of the van with his mom driving and he's like doing a business uh on his nokia cell phone and at one point he calls his friend and they do a close-up on the phone and he is calling his friend who nokia has decided to name cooch and so he calls cooch and talks to cooch on the phone about you know no i'm with my mom going to wherever it is they were going, was there no one under the age of 60 in the room when they talked about this commercial who could have told them <laughs> not to call the friend cooch? <laughs> uh, likely not. Uh, I, there are some great ones though. That may not be the, the best cell phone commercial. There's another one, I think an earlier Labatt's one that was shown. Um, with uh, a fellow at the bar and he pulls up one of those big, you know, monster cell phones. 
And I think he's, yeah. Yeah. And he goes, what? yeah, he's like, and he's being Mr. You know, cool guy at the bar with the cell phone. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I all I can say is I guess uh, Canadians were just fascinated with technology <laughs> and modern, <laughs> modern technology. And then you also had the classic 2000 flushes blue commercial with the guy who invented it named Al Eisen that you see just that you saw all over in the nineties that I'd, I'd it was just it was cool to see that yeah even Canada gets allies in on their uh, on on all of their all of their sports broadcasts but uh, what was interesting was I looked this up so this dude Al Eisen basically invented the concept of you know these things that you drop in the back of the toilet because um, like his wife just kept telling him to clean the toilet and in 1978 he was like I hate doing this so he like experimented with putting uh, chlorine in a cup and weighing it down with rocks in his own toilet and it worked and he never had to clean the toilet. So he started like selling this and commercially uh, selling it commercially in like 83. So then even though he wound up selling his business, he like continued to do these uh, commercials. And in 97 is around the time where they realized that this thing that they were selling that included like chlorine and bleach was like, just decimating the little plastic, uh, the little plastic uh, flush flappers in the back of toilets. So this, instead of like telling them not to put bleach in toilets, uh, they just made every toilet company redesign the little flappers to make them capable of withstanding <laughs> these these incredible uh, chemicals that people were adding to their toilets. So. Uh, this is amazing. I got to say, as you guys continue and progress with this uh, this theme for your show, I hope that we can look back and say, which is the furthest we got from an actual curling game? And this might be it right now. <laughs> I told Jonathan coming in that I knew that you and Jonathan were going to nerd out over the curling in this game. And I was like, you know what? I was in seventh grade. I had no idea what curling was, but I'm going to bring the comments on the commercials. I said, that will be my contribution to this, uh, I, <laughs> to this show. Well, I would definitely recommend as, and I'm still putting up more shows as I, I've got a bunch of these tapes. What happened was uh, around COVID, I really started to uh, copy some VHS tapes, older, older tapes. And I, I got a hold of Don Bartlett in particular, who's playing in this game, Kathy King, who are nearby here. And uh, Neil, Neil Houston sent me some of his, so it's been great. I, I hope to get more, but the commercials are fantastic. And going back, you could make a collection of some of these Labatt commercials uh, and just uh, the clothing, the outfits, the themes. Uh, they're, they're fantastic. Some of the earlier ones in the 80s uh, are very rustic Canadian. <laughs> like if you're watching this from outside Canada, you go, that's what I imagine Canada looks like. And of course, it's nothing of the case, but, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's flannel shirts and big mustaches and sitting outside by the fire drinking a blue. <laughs> I tell you what, I've gotten in on a couple of the Zoom rewatches that you've done with the mat, and they're great. If you haven't, uh, find Curling Legends on Facebook, and that's where they post the schedule for these. But definitely go in and watch some of the rewatches that, that Kevin and Matt Hames have done with these old games. Ninth end. Uh, so Peter, I, I put my notes, Peter's finally decides to play in the rings with a lead. Like This is the first time they, they come in. Walchuk plays a tap back to create a little pocket. Kerry jams the takeout attempt. Walchuk plays a raised takeout, and Alberta lies first, third, and fourth shot. The players attempt, uh, Peters attempts a double, only getting one. So then Martin makes a double to sit three. Peters then again only gets a, a only gets a single on another double attempt, and Martin draws for his three. So 
I think, I mean, this end is interesting because it's, it sets up like it's going to be defensive, but Martin does a really good job of manipulating the stones in the ring to, to get a big end out of it. Yeah. And it shows that the, uh, the precision is required when there's rocks in play. And if you just have one off shot, which I think here, the key one is Dan Carey's hit where he jams and he's actually, I mean, he's just got to hit that on the nose. There's so many ways to not make that mistake. And, uh, you know, they, he even chats with uh, with Vec afterwards, and you know, there's a bit of that dialogue. It's neat to kind of hear them and their relationship at that point, because that's a that's a big shot in that big moment. Uh, but you can tell that, and what ama- what amazed me throughout this whole game, and I think this is a point to highlight, just resolve. And I think mm-hmm. that's one area that where we talk about an amateur game turning into a professional sport. Everyone in this game, or at least it appears on the outside, seems to hold their self like a professional in terms of their resolve. You, at any point in this game, one of the teams could have just given up and things could have just gone the other way. And it was amazing how, like even in this moment where it, it's, uh, you know, it's tense, it's very tense and they, uh, they, they've got that relationship. And then, but Kevin, here's, here's another interesting point. Listen to Kevin on, on Walchuk's draw and he misses the guard by four inches and he's yelling and he goes, he's saying, we can't rack. Like, you know, and he's, he you can tell Kevin's a little off. He's not his mm-hmm. normal cerebral self there. And uh, yeah. there are a, a few bits like that, but certainly Dan's shot uh, was a huge miss. And then that double attempt, as you say, by Vic on his last, those rocks are only uh, two feet apart, three feet apart maybe. It's a uh, pretty makeable shot. I think you would, uh, you'd expect him even back then that he's going to make that most times. And uh, that was definitely a surprise. Yeah, he's, he missed two double attempts, right? And I think post game he says that's the shot that he wants to have back, yeah. right? That's the and that's true. I think if he gets either of those doubles, um, it's a very different. It's a tie game with Hammer, right? Coming home as opposed to down one, which is a huge, huge swing difference, even back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So there's an interesting hot mic right at the end of the end, right? And it's and Martin's like, "How do you guys want to play this?" And then he goes, "The way it's been going, I don't think we should play it up and down." <laughs> and and I, I mean, the, the stereotype on Martin, the, at least back in the, the '90s, is he was the hit and run guy, right? He's the guy who's kind of calling through the rings in the second end, and uh, you know, you know, w- once he gets a lead, he's just going to blast his way home. And this game, he makes a, a really interesting decision to. to play offensively in order to steal the game out. Right? And actually Don uh, Bartlett mentioned it's the, one of the few times they'd asked Jules, Jules uh, Oucher, uh, Kevin's great coach. Uh, now the coach for team Gushu. He actually wasn't much of a strategist in terms of helping discuss that with Kevin. Kevin, that's where sort of Kevin shined. Uh, Jules was a great, I mean, he's might be the greatest um, uh, rock uh, analyzer in the world. They would say, uh, also, he you know he might keep an eye on Kevin's delivery at times, but when it came to strategy, that's not something they would usually reach out. And this was a case where Don said they did ask him, and mm-hmm. uh, the, I think the actual line was uh, the way Don remembers it uh, was um, he said that uh, yeah he he told us to go hard for the steal, and mm-hmm. right like back in that era, I, like I think today what's interesting about this end, this tenth end, four rock five rock. I think that end could be played. I think the end today is played the same way. Like, I don't know that yeah. the rules really change the outcome, which is why I think when you look at the mathematics around and, uh, of your win probability in a one one nothing game, it's pretty consistently kind of 60-40. The team that's one up without hammer wins 60% of the time. Sounds great, but you still lose 40%. 
And I do believe that the, 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 that play of this end was not necessarily the way it was always played. I think teams, especially in three rock, we're only three years into it. They're trying to figure out what do I do in this situation? In the old rules, you just play to give them one, play a very simple end, give them one, you get hammer in the extra end. Now that's not the situation anymore. And, and, teams were still trying to adjust and figure out how to deal with this but i think in the moment i remember like i distinctly remember watching this game i know i don't remember where i was but i remember the decision for kevin to do that and thinking that that was not what i would expect and it was a bit um out of the ordinary for him as well as maybe a lot of other players at the time yeah for sure right and so um, it starts kind of straight up. Like Bartlett goes top four, and then Grant's obviously forced to throw up the corner guard, and then Bartlett guards right. Then Grant freezes top four, which it's if you know if you're Vic, that's actually a really good setup. And then I think the the end starts to go off the rails in the next couple of shots. Well, unfortunately, right? though, and it's interesting these little things. Uh, Scotty shot that that guard is not in the right spot, and yeah. they're, they're trying to move. And it's interesting how it's not a full corner guard out towards the eight foot. It's sort of hiding a piece to the four. It's kind of blocking off some draw paths. So it, it, you know, it kind of in a way hurts them later on. Um, yeah. 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 He chokes off one of the draw path mm. sides for sure. Uh, so on the second shot, Grant freezes top four. So he gets the freeze set up. This is where Kevin, it's what, even, even though I know the outcome, I'm like, wow, this is like for, even for today, it's like Kevin just basically calls guards the rest of the end, right? So Rudy guards. Then Newfeld plays a peel and roll. Rudy guards again. Newfeld tries a, a run back that does not work. And there's now what I would call it. I'm not sure if you know this term, but it's a giant guttle. It's like it's one of my favorite Scottish curling terms where you've basically got a whole bunch of stones all stacked up. So basically three stones all at kind of not great angles in front of the rings, right? So there's no obvious runbacks, and it's actually not easy to double peel them off either. Um, Walchuk guards again, right? Like I, I do think one of the big differences, and you kind of flagged it, is in, in 2020 curling, teams really try to kind of draw into the rings and close down the scoring zone and in kind of Russ Howard terminology. Martin just keeps throwing guards up, right? And this so this guard then, the Walchuk guard then prompts a Manitoba team meeting and they debate angles. Newfeld basically opts to play a clearing shot, and he doesn't get the results he wants. He just moves one away, but there's still not a great angle. Manitoba still shot behind staggered guards, and the Toba the Toba Stone's actually working against them now. Walchuk throws another guard. Carey plays a double peel and gets a good angle, uh, and so Manitoba sits second and third. But Alberta's still shot, and so then Manito- Alberta calls a timeout. And this is kind of a good moment here. Martin basically is talking about what angles they have. And he, he basically says, we've got to put another guard here to take away their shot. And he's right. He puts it there. Uh, Manitoba then calls a t- timeout. The one thing that and maybe I'm not sure if it's there, but but watching the game, there's this redstone up in the up against the boards. And it, it's kind of it's kind of screaming out for Kevin Cooey to come down and attempt an in off. Or Kevin Martin. And, Kevin Martin, you mean. Or- yeah, or Kevin or, Martin, or, okay, or, or Kevin Cooey, or Kevin, <laughs> like, either or, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but it's it, it looked to me like there was an in-off attempt, and nobody looks at it. Like I'm just like modern curling, like the, you're always worried about the in-off too. Now mm-hmm. I'm not. It's hard from TV to tell well, if the angle's there, but there's all this timeout. No one even looks well, at that what, stone. What about the fact that there's two timeouts and they leave them till the end of the game in a game like this that has already yeah. had all this scoring? I, I was surprised. I remember thinking, oh wait, that's right, they had timeouts back then. No coach on the ice. Uh, but then yeah. you realize 
how did they have these left over? <laughs> it was kind of surprising when you think about it. Good thing they did because they needed it. Yeah, they needed it. So, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, they, they needed it the time, talk time. It wasn't talk time. So as you're yeah. throwing draws, you're eating up 20 seconds, 25, 30 seconds on that shot. Not like yeah. today where talking time is the only thing that, uh, that works against you. Yeah, for sure. So Peter's opts to, uh, Peter's opts to try and throw, uh, through the hole. Like there's a, basically one of the debates is, is there a hole between the two guards that Martin's put up? Uh, he tries to go through the hole. Um, Colleen is now really worried about <laughs> Peters with less than two minutes to, to throw two stones, right? He still has a timeout also. And my notes here are like, Colleen, let me tell you about this young kid named Kevin Cooey because <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Cooey will play a full end in two minutes, right? Um, Peters, uh, Peters only, like, he rubs on one guard. And so Martin guards again, and Peters does not have much. And again, in my notes, except the in-off, which he doesn't look at. And so really what he's left with is like, a, it's hard to explain, but basically an angle tick back trick shot, like a, basically a double angle raise takeout. And Peters actually isn't that far off from it, right? Like he just kind of, he, he just, just misses the angle he wants. Uh, to me, the highlight in the, at the end is Shauna Martin then jumps over the boards and comes running for, uh, for Kevin Martin. And it, the other thing that's interesting is the team Martin celebrations, not like that expressive. Right. It's not like like a modern Briar celebration is like everyone's hugging, screaming, brooms going in the air. This is very much like old school, like good game, shake hands. I also think there's a level of exhaustion. It was such a uh, mental battle and such a topsy turvy event. I, I honestly think the guys look spent. And yeah, it, it just did seem like it may have just hit them hours later what really happened. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, but it was so the Shauna Martin's like the the emotion. The team Martin guys, they're happy, but it's like handshakes, handshakes, good game, smiling and stuff. But anyway, so in the kind of Vic Router thing, make the final ten to eight for Alberta, right? So a totally wild game, and a, a really the last ends I would say is probably not one of the better ends in the game, but it's interesting this kind of guard your way home, and uh, that Kevin Martin used the guard guard your way home to win his. Uh, his second briar. I think my favorite Mike moment was at the very end after Martin throws his last guard and then he walks off like he can't watch uh, Peter's final shot and they're debating whether or not they've left a hole for him. And Martin says, well, if it's a quarter inch wider than the rock, Vic can make the darn thing. And like, my question is like, was Martin the first guy that really mastered being Mike and letting his personality shine on, on broadcasts like this? I, I would, I'm not sure. I, I don't, I don't see Kevin that way. I don't think he's, he's intentional. Uh, I, I see Kevin as a bit of a savant. He's always sort of uh, been a certain way. Yeah. I, th I think it was natural. I guess that what I would say is authentic. I don't, I don't think it was uh, um, something that he'd ever really consciously thought of, but uh, he does seem to work with the mic pretty well. Yeah, no, he, there's a lot of great kind of like live mic or, you know, it's like the mic picks up him saying great, great analysis in the game for sure. Uh, whether it's intentional or not, I'm not sure. It'd probably be pretty hard to <laughs> play to the camera on top of winning a Briar yeah. final. That's a, well, and, and part of it, microphoning, you know, microphoning players is maybe just barely 10 years in, I think. And, uh, but it, it is something about the sport that's fantastic. I think the sounds and what, players say is as much uh as a uh, for the fans it's a, it's a big part of the sport and it's something that you need especially since we don't have the cornbrooms anymore to make noise <laughs> so we've got a bunch of questions so what do you think the biggest 
differences between this game and a 2020 curling game? Whew. Well, I mean, the, the big, outside of some of the things we talked about, like the big baggy jackets and some of the, uh, the odd, uh, odd, odd viewing points in terms of uh, attire and things like that. But the gameplay, like I said, in a way, that final end, although it may not have seemed obvious at the time, is a lot similar to where you might see a modern game develop. But certainly the conditions mm-hmm. very different. The accuracy in the shooting. I mean, if you look at shooting percentages in, a, in the briar over a span of time, and I've never done this yet, but if you mapped it out, you know, they just get higher and higher. And sure, there's some variability in, in the ability for those volunteers to actually measure the shooting. But for the most part, it was just harder to make shots. It just was. Yeah. And that changes everything about the game and how you plan your shot. So you you find that today, I think that's maybe that's the biggest takeaway. Today, it is without question, you are afraid of every single shot your opponent's going to make. I think in this game, they're kind of at the beginning of that. I mean, I, I do believe in the men's game, there was always a fear of your opponent making. But you found mm-hmm. in this game a lot of shots that were more defensive style, throwing up guards, waiting for the other person to make something. Whereas today, uh, you wouldn't leave those shots. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so who do, you, who do you have as the player of the game? You know, that's a tricky one. Uh, <laughs> you know, if I uh, going back to the Bill Simmons idea, if I think about who won the game, I think in a way Warren Hansen. He's, okay. <laughs> you know, he's gone from being this, you know, uh, villain and, uh, you know, and he still remained that, I think, to a lot of players and the older players following this. But he did win the day in terms of the event. So we're going to call this the TSN turning point. So how do you think curling history would be different if something happened? Like, what so was the turning point in the game? And then how does that, you think, fa- uh, affect well, curling history well, going forward? Let's look at the math so then we can try to determine the turning point because there might have been four of them, I think. But in the last six ends, so heading into the sixth end, Peters is about a 75% chance he should win this game. It switches to 21% after he gives up four. Uh, it, it, he then recaptures his advantage at the end of the ninth end, or sorry, heading into the ninth end where he's 85% chance to win. <laughs> in, in which the case then Kevin cracks the three ender and Vic Peters drops to 40%. So, you know, you'd have to say that that ninth end was a huge swing. I mean, weirdly, those two doubles we talked about, you know, you're, you're two up in nine, e- even though all of this crazy stuff's happened and you could take a shot here, a shot there. If Vic makes that shot and Kevin only gets two, and it's only like we say a few feet to run ba- back that double, he should make that most of the time it's a completely different situation and tied up with hammer. I think Vic is much more likely to win the game. Obviously things mm-hmm. can happen. And in that environment, we already saw that things had happened, but I do think that was probably the turning point. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, and I always used to look at that TSN turning point. They would always show it. Uh, the sad thing was they always tried to, well, sad. The, un- the appropriate and understanding thing is they would show a shot that's made. When in reality, in curling, unfortunately, a lot of times the turning point is the miss. Yeah, and I think that's the one. And as you mentioned, Vic talked about he'd he'd want that one back. Yeah, and it's we were kind of talking about this before earlier. Like, they're Kevin Martin and Vic Peters are base pretty much kind of equal in standing in curling at that point. Both one-time Briar champions. Um, you know, Vic had kind of had the bad break in the the '93 Briar with the four-way tie. Um, Kevin Martin had kind of lost uh, a couple of finals back to back to Manitoba teams. Well, the semi, actually, so at this lost, point lost in time, semi, it's semifinal to uh, Burtnick, but a famous oh, semifinal yeah. that is I've got on uh, also on YouTube and, and people should watch that because 
it's a game Kevin probably has uh, every reason to win early, and Kerry makes this massive, you know, twenty-five foot tap back that, mm-hmm. and then Kevin uh, kind of falls apart after that. And 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 a great indicator actually is as a game ahead of this one two years later, where in that ninety-five semifinal, Kevin does sort of lose his composure, and in this mm-hmm. game he doesn't. And so that's yeah. that's a, that's a, a a moment as you can see them progress. I think, you know, Kevin Martin was going to be Kevin Martin, whatever that ended up becoming, because of the time and effort he was focusing in on the sport. And if you listen to his podcast now that he has with Warren Inside Curling, he's talked about that, like the the hours spent at practicing, and it just wasn't something that other players were doing. He was taking it to a whole new level. And so yeah, even losing sure. this, I I don't think that deters Kevin from going on. But it certainly changes, uh, perhaps, the legacy of Vic Peters. Yeah, and, and so is this. So one thing I couldn't find out. Uh, it's, it's kind of where curling history records are a bit spotty. So Wikipedia does have the whole field from the '97 trial. So Vic Peters isn't there. Did Martin punch his ticket to the '97 trials by winning the Briar? Or? I, I believe so, because if uh, in because of this Briar, if if the way it would work, if Kevin Martin had his spot then Vic would get it, right? Because they were going to give mm. a prior spot. I believe, I, I you know, I, it's, it, it had changed uh, every few years in the early days, but I kind of recall that there were some instances where a team would come second in a bond spiel and they would get it because the other team had already got their ticket. And I do yeah. think that this Briar, as <laughs> you know, in this case, kind of being a qualifying bond spiel, uh, it does seem like, I, I, I believe that, yeah, Kevin may not have been in the trials. Um, but so I don't quote me on that. I'm not a hundred percent certain, but I, mm-hmm. I, I believe so. And which is fascinating to think about because then he loses the, the, the trial final to, to Mike Harris. But, um, yeah. so I, and, and as we know, of course, they altered the qualification for the trials, eh, you know, after, after trying this for a, a couple of times, they realized maybe this isn't the best way to get our, uh, our top teams into a competition mm-hmm. because definitely Vic Peters, was one of the better teams in Canada and should have been at that trials. If you're trying to get the best team to the Olympics, having him there was a mistake or having Vic not qualify and be in that competition was a mistake. Yeah. Cause there, I mean, there's other teams that are like, were good teams for the era, but certainly weren't as decorated. Right. So you had the Dave Smith rink, which had a good Briar one, but didn't win. Um, you had Brent McDonald, which was a good team out of Alberta, but again, not a, not a Briar champ. And Mike Harris, I mean, obviously he's kind of famous for for kind of, and it was a good kind of Ontario team for sure for years. But he he hadn't won a briar, even been in a briar at that point. And you'd have Vic, who's a briar champ, and not able to to even get to the the Olympic trials. So, do you have any stats, like weird stats or factoids from this game, or any any I, as the crow with Navkai, any interesting numbers? Well, there's uh, I've got I've got one, but it's nothing to do with the game itself. Uh, this was one by Neil Houston that I I really like. Uh, we talked about the the venue and how they uh, had to put up a bunch of money to set it up. And one of the keys of this was actually getting uh, all the rights that they needed to sell alcohol, things like that. And and there was no guarantee all these things were going to happen. So, you know, Warren said it to me that um, it almost didn't happen for a bunch of reasons. You know, when when the Saddle Dome brings in a musical act, I mean, they get 50% of the, tic- the, the ticket sales. Well, you know, CCA couldn't afford that. That wasn't going to happen, right? And the committee couldn't afford that. So... Uh, the other thing was the patch. And so at, at every briar beginning in, I believe it was 1982, they've had a thing called the briar patch. And it's a place where you would just go and mingle and it's a social hall and they would make a lot of uh, revenue from the uh, the monies brought in by selling alcohol 
you know, and food, but mostly alcohol. And at this event, they knew that was going to be key. They were going to have, you know, drawing a lot of people. They, they want to do that. And they, they had to fight for that. And then in effect, what happened is they used the, uh, the big four nearby where you had, you could walk over from the saddle dome to this uh, facility, convention facility. And they, and that was a separate, that cost them separately, a separate negotiation. And, uh, I, they finally got it going and it was a, it was a blast. It was a you know great event. Obviously when you get, you know, 15,000 people coming out of an arena and a whole lot of them would head into this, uh, this patch, the fire department, uh, came and limited to them to 1500 in the patch. And now this huh. facility I'm sure could take many more. Uh, and so they, they were concerned because they realized, okay, we're not going to make the income that we thought we needed to recoup. And then they found out that the daily fine was only $300 a day. So they just paid it. <laughs> so the next time, you know, you're at an event, you're looking around, you're going, we must be over capacity here. Just recognize that you probably are. And it's probably not that expensive. So, uh, so they did that. And, uh, there was a couple of other, um, uh, you know, interesting tidbits. I mean, like, as I said, on, on the way, the, the swings in the game were, were amazing. I mean, I, I've never gone back to look at some other Briar finals, but I'd have to think it's right up there to think that you had a, uh, a swing for Martin as an example, to have like a 25% chance of winning to swing back up to an, uh, a 79% down to 65, down to 14, up to back up to 60. Uh, that's some wild, wild swings towards the end of the game. And I don't know that we see that very often in the historical context of the sport, particularly before then, because, uh, you know, without the free, the, the free guard zone, it was difficult to come from behind. You know, having said that in those early eighties, we had some, you know, amazing comebacks. Uh, but again, you know, ice conditions, there are even, even more challenging, yeah, but you've got, you know, Kerry Burtnick in, in 81 and, you know, cracking three enders or 85. And that's, that's one of the uh, comments Don Bartlett made when we talked about the, the buzz in that arena and the, and the, and the crowd noise, he said, the only thing that it compared to that point in his curling career was that 85 Moncton Briar final, uh, when Al Hackner makes the shot and the crowd yeah. goes wild. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's a crazy event. So what do you have as the funniest cultural moment? So bad fashion choice, ad comment, any, anything that stuck out, Ryan, left us a note saying Don Walchuk's shoes, <laughs> which were a classic of, of 90s curling fashion, for sure. Or having the two different shoes, of course, right? Yeah. He's, the, uh, he's got the special Asham Alberta shoe on the left and then just the regular shoe on the right. Uh, well, not Didn't even just the shoes. Just, just even the way he slid with them, I don't think is something that yeah. can, can be uh, <laughs> uh, unappreciated because uh, it's a yeah. very difficult slide technique. And if anyone that's ever gotten on ice and tried to do it, you've probably done a face plant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the uh well one of the one of them I think for sure is uh you know if you if you look back before this uh Kevin looked very different cuz he had the wispy mustache. And this mm -hmm. is the Kevin Martin here in 97 that now actually looks a whole lot like he does today. So yeah. kudos to the modern Kevin Martin. Uh and you know <laughs> another little tidbit I thought was interesting is the the not lifting of the rock. So you've got yeah. um You've got uh, Denny, Don, and Dan uh, had all still lifted, uh, but Vic had switched to a no lift. You've got, um, you know, Rudy. I think might have uh, might have lifted on hits. Of, I can't recall, but but it was interesting because Kevin had really sort of uh, progressed that sort of technique in the in the early '90s with his success. But to have actual guys that had played most of their career and not done that was uh, was maybe a bit surprising. And not not everyone did it, but you could see that starting to shift in the sport. 
And, uh, you know, always those, those baggy plasticky jackets. Uh, obviously if you won one and, and you got to wear it, you didn't care what it, what it was. But, um, I, I think in that point in time, most of us kind of, uh, miss the old wool, wool sweaters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I kind of miss an old curling cardigan. There's, and <laughs> there isn't really, uh, the hard to find. Um, so you, you actually suggested a couple others. So you said these are from Bill Simmons podcast empire. So let's, let's run through a couple of them. So, uh, what's the age the best do you think? Yeah. So I, I mean, I mentioned big arenas. I mean, that's great. And I think curling hopefully can get back to that again for some big events, you know, and, and, and part of, part of, they don't talk about is the, the price to get in the arena was pretty reasonable. I've often said, mm-hmm. I think that we make it cost prohibitive, but at the same time, I don't know what the deal is on the back end. So back then, however, they worked the deal, they managed to get it and they got people in the seats and, you know, it's just cool to get people in the seats and Vic Peters handshake release. So for, as a kid who grew up in Manitoba and, you know, followed and admired a lot of the, the greats in our province, always love that handshake release, very, um, specific and prominent. Uh, he, you know, he had a great, great slide, great delivery. Uh, you know, Vic, uh, we lost him a few years ago. He passed away to cancer, but just, a, just a great man. And by the way, just someone that was really beloved in, in Manitoba. Uh, you know, we often hear sometimes about those greats that are, you know, a little cagey, little, um, you know, maybe a little, um, um, uh, uh, what's the word I would look for? I guess I'm trying to be uh, polite here, but you know, maybe, um, over, overly competitive to the point where they don't, uh, win f- friends and, and, uh, uh, off the ice. But Vic was not one of those. He was, uh, a really, uh, really great guy. Scotty Grant, I'll mention as well, someone who, when I was coming up and, you know, I was in early men's in Manitoba, uh, he was uh, always friendly to us, always chatty, you know, never, you know, when you're on a great team, you don't necessarily need to be that way, but he was always, uh, always great that way. So just a really likable team. I was a big fan of the Vic Peters team. I certainly was really disappointed in this game. Uh, but, and as, as I mentioned, I think that the not lifting the rock certainly aged the best because we've seen that become a, a predominant way to play the game. Yeah. So what's, what's the age of the worst, do you think? Well, we mentioned earlier shooting percentages. Again, if, if you're just a stats guy and you're looking at numbers, you'd go, wow, these guys are terrible. And let's, let's be clear. That's not the case. Conditions are <laughs> dramatically different. Yeah. I mean, yes, people have gotten better at the sport. There's no doubt. But I've always liked the idea that if you took a modern team that maybe hasn't grown up on bad ice conditions, uh, or is, or is played as commonly in ice, bad ice conditions and went back and played the 90, 95, you know, Briar as an example in Halifax. Uh, I really think the old time teams win because playing yeah. on bad ice was a skill. Uh, I'm not saying it created a better game and certainly conditions here were good enough to create good ice conditions, but they still weren't ideal. And so that that's, uh, you know, something I think that people got to recognize is that the reason those shooting percentages are, aren't great is because the game was harder. Uh, that gray free guard zone. Uh, yeah, that's, that that's a good thing that they didn't keep that going. Cause I, I was not a fan of that. Although I, I was a fan of having the, uh, uh, we saw those little coins in the ice for the hot shots. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed those, which I think a, a little bit better than the massive coffee cups <laughs> that make it hard <laughs> to see the corner guard when you're using a red rock in the modern day. But the, um, I think the other thing, obviously we, we hit on it a lot is that unintentional corner sweeping, but it, as we said before, so hard to unsee it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I, I'm sure you've kind of noticed in a lot of games you've gone back and watched. Like it's one of those things that I can't unsee now, knowing all we know about Broomgate. But... Well, well, watch Kevin Martin in the '91 uh, Worlds and watch uh, Scotland 
they've got the two sweepers on one side. And, you know, of course, um, now they would say, oh, you know, we our interns always seem to curl so much. <laughs> we can never figure <laughs> out why. So who who won the week, do you think? I, I think it's a tie between Warren and Kevin. I, I do think. And I, in a way, I would almost say more Warren. Uh, he shifted um, the narrative. Uh, quite a bit for himself. Uh, maybe you could say his apex became more, you know, to coin another Simmons phrase, the apex might've been that uh, Olympic trials or getting into the, you know, heading into the Olympics. That was always uh, one of Warren's dreams to, to move towards that. Uh, but then, you know, Kevin Martin certainly um, got a second briar. Uh, you could say it maybe would have springboarded him onto great success, but in a way actually he went into a bit of a lull, didn't, didn't win the worlds. So it was over two. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of the knock on him in, until 2008 when he was able to get over that hump. And uh, there was a, a bit of a, you know, so so in a way, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky one. If, if Kevin doesn't win that, I, I don't necessarily know that history changes much um, going forward. Now, if Kevin had, had beaten Mike Harris in that trials final, I think it's a it's a completely different story, but he, but he didn't. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say Warren, I'd give him the slight favorite. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I agree. I think Warren. It's like the big moment for him, right? Uh, the biggest game. I mean, this obviously he won the week, so he won the week <laughs> definitionally, right? But I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't like this. Is not peak Kevin Martin. I'd say probably that 08 through twenty ten runs. Probably, you know, if we're talking about the Bill Simmons phrase, prime Kevin Martin. That's like that's the. That's his team where he was kind of seemed untouchable there for a few well, years. Well, one of the uh, the interesting things about this specific team is he's got Rudy Ramtran at second, or, mm-hmm. and they'd had revolving seconds throughout the '90s. They tried yeah. Randy Furby at third and Don Walchuk at second, and early on in that season, Donnie was playing great, and Kevin asked Randy Furby to step down. You know, especially in that era position meant a lot and here's randy furby saying wait i'm a two-time briar champion at third for pat ryan i'm not going to do that and so that split takes place now let's wonder if randy furby uh, takes a different perspective let's say kevin never asked them to switch spots what does that team do uh over that the next few years and instead of where kevin seemed to always blame his second every time they lost i think maybe you know what going back who won the week Rudy won the week because if they lose this final, <laughs> Kevin's probably coming back <laughs> next year with another second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and Rudy, had, Rudy had a great run through, uh, yeah, up to, up to 2000. And then is it 2000 he picks up Carter? Yes. When yeah. Kevin Carter, Carter, okay. uh, Carter actually was playing with, uh, Dave Natto and Randy Furby and chose to go play with, uh, with Kevin. So again, another sort of what if, and then they pick up Scott Pfeiffer. Yeah. Oh, so that or the Scotter, Scotter Marcel. I'm not sure. I, 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 I got to recall exactly, but yeah. Uh, so sort of one of those what ifs that when Carter leaves and and goes joins that team. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a fascinating moment. So so thanks for indulging us on this. It's been a lot of fun. Um. So do you mind just telling us? Uh, I guess everything you've got. So so who do you have coming up on your podcast and. Uh, any other kind of uh, ventures you have going on right now in the curling world? Yeah, I'm not sure when you've got this episode coming up, but uh, so I'll just jump through a few. I've got Terry Jones as a Hall of Fame uh, writer here in Edmonton. Uh, I've got an episode with him coming up soon on the Curling Legends. Uh, Ray Kells, I mentioned, should be coming up on a, on a future episode. I've got a few others that I've got uh, in the can as well as some I'm trying to schedule. Uh, something else that might already be out by the time this comes out or or may not is a new podcast 
where we take a look at curling analytics. And I know why we want to get you and uh, you and Ryan on that at some point. We lost Ryan here, so we'll have to do that another time. Uh, but the idea around that show is maybe just to um, uh, have, a, have a couple of types of shows. One where we throw around some uh, ideas like uh, how to rank teams. You know, should we play eight or ten ends? And and uh, is, a, is a no tick rule something we, we might want to try? But, you know, things like that, look, using numbers and, uh, and analysis. And then also we want to have some of these... Uh, um, episodes where we just look at a particular shot uh, a little bit uh, like Doug Wilson does on the uh, the curling uh, uh, the daily uh, daily curling puzzle on Facebook and uh, in fact talked with Doug about getting him on that show as well so hope hope to get you guys on so we can examine one of your favorite shots uh, sometime soon and who knows maybe we'll get that episode out before this one I don't I don't know we'll, we'll have to <laughs> well uh, but I but looking forward to some of that and I'll, I'll be probably writing some articles for the uh, the curling news which is now uh, a digital edition uh, only for this season, but you can go to si.com slash curling or thecurlingnews.com. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. It's a lot of fun. And as we said at the beginning, we're going to try to start doing these uh, regularly. So if any listeners have suggestions for games they want us to look at between 97 and uh, 2022. Uh, there's a whole bunch out there, but and we've got some ideas, but we're also open to suggestions. Uh, just drop us a line. So thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon. Rocks Across the Pond.